looking at he is able. Uh, it's part of the passage. It's a small part of the passage, but it's a big part of who God is. Uh, and we're going to be looking at an interesting passage in Hebrews this morning. And, and I, I guess I want to lead off with, have you ever been asked to co-sign for a loan? I have. <laughs> and uh, there was a time in my life where when I had both of my businesses going and uh, I, I would kind of semi-regularly get calls from family members. Hey, I got my eyes on this hot car, Uncle John, or, or you know, what? Could you co-sign for a loan? And, and, and yeah, you know, I would do that for my kids, but I had to kind of make a policy that's like, no, it's going to mess up our relationship because if you can't pay for it, you're not going to call me anymore, <laughs> and it, you know all of that. But we're going to look this morning at the fact that Jesus is the one. Uh, who not only initiates the covenant, but he also is the guarantor of the covenant. He's the one who co-signs for us because we're helpless. We've been looking at that. We see here that in this passage in Hebrews, we looked at a better covenant last week. We saw that the law of Moses and the priesthood were linked together, that you can't change the priesthood without changing the law. Why? Because if you change the priesthood, in other words, the Levitical priesthood, its effectiveness well, it wasn't that effective to begin. It covered sin, but it never eliminated sin. And so you change that to now the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Well, if that's the case, then there's no longer the, the machinery in the law to atone for sin. And so there had to be a change in the law. We looked at that uh, quite a bit last week. And so this linkage between the law of Moses and the priesthood, they were absolutely linked together. You could not separate them. And so, uh, but we saw that the law was weak and imperfect because it tells people how to live, but it doesn't equip people to do so. So there's, it's a one-sided deal. This, the old covenant was God's covenant with man, and it was all about what man needed to do to satisfy the requirements of a holy God. And yet man is man and not able to fulfill the requirements perfectly. And so we looked at that. We saw that the basis of this new covenant is not on the basis of the fleshly commandment. In other words, men... Uh, who were born, and you had to be born into a certain tribe, tribe of Levi, to be a priest. And, and, and there was a fleshly commandment there. But no, Jesus comes not on the, uh, a fleshly commandment, but through the power of an endless life. Huge difference. Again, the writer here is systematically going through point by point in Judaism, in the law, in the priesthood, and he is going through and he is demonstrating over and over again that Jesus is better. And seeing that he comes with a better covenant, a better contract for man. And so as we look at that this morning, we're going to see that the writer continues to compare the two priesthoods. There's the Levitical priests on one side, and then there's Jesus on the other. Big difference. We see that in the law, in the Levitical priesthood, that there were many, many sacrifices. They were perpetual. They had to keep going. There had to be a continuing atoning for sin, and yet it was a covering, as I mentioned. It was a temporary fix. It was 
putting a patch on the tire. It was never replacing the tire. It was never fixing it. Because man's sin was perpetually before God. And so the atoning had to be perpetually before God as well. So we saw that in the Levitical priesthood, there were many priests. And we'll look at that this morning. A perpetual lineage of priests. And and in the high priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, there's one. His name is Jesus, and he died on a cross, and there is one priest, period. There will never be more than one. There is no need for more than one. There is only one who was ever qualified for that office. And, and that's the point the writer's making. We saw that in the old covenant, in the Levitical priesthood, that it was dominated by sin and failure and death. That the, the priests kept dying, and so they had to be replaced. And yet we look at the priesthood that Jesus had, and it is sinless. Uh, it's perfected. We looked at that word perfected last week. And that he lives forevermore. There is no death in him, in his priesthood. And so we ended last week in verse 19. I'm going to back up to verse 17. And we're going to go through, I'm going to read through verse 28. uh, And then we'll come back and we'll tag the bases that that we see there. So uh, beginning in verse 17, it says, For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. An annulling means it's canceled uh, of the former commandment because it was weak and unprofitable. It's weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, verse 20, uh, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever or eternally, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. That's just what a great passage. I've been looking forward to teaching this because there's there's just so much there. And the writer systematically, again, he's in, in the middle of what amounts to a complex argument. But the point of this complex argument is to bring the people to simplicity. We've looked at that for a couple of weeks as we've been here in chapter 7. And and the writer, he is masterful at his understanding of the Old Testament, of Judaism, of the law, of the priesthood. And, and he's very understanding of the gospel. He understands the person and the work of Christ. And what he's doing is demonstrating and hopefully bringing these 
people out of the fog because they had wandered, drifted in their hearts, in their understanding, not understanding that how could Jesus be this high priest? We looked last week at that he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. And and so he's addressed that and said it's not about what tribe, it's about who commissioned you. And he's going on with that idea here. So uh, the, the temple, remember that back in the first century when the writer wrote this, the temple was still operating. Judaism was still a viable way of life for the people in Israel. It was tough. The rebellion had probably started. If not, it would start because a a major rebellion erupted in in 66 AD. And it was culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. So we don't know exactly when this book was written, but it was written during the time when the persecution was definitely on the increase. The people were frustrated. They were upset. They were sort of uh, getting unplugged from Christianity because Judaism was still there and it was... They were suffering. Uh, We've looked at that in depth as we've gone along. Uh, The point here that the writer's making is that the Levitical priests, they were priests by virtue of the fact of their lineage, by heredity. You Remember, we talked about you can't be a Levitical priest if you're not from the tribe of Levi. You can't be a high priest if you're not from the family of Aaron, who is from among the, the tribe of Levi. And so... The, the writer has, he's visited Psalm 110 several times here, uh, four times prior to this passage. And he's talked about uh, that he is called to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he, we're going to see in the text that he adds something to that this morning for the first time. But the point that he's talking about, this oath that he's talking about, the oath is, is Jesus has become a surety for a new and a better covenant. He is, he's the co-signer. He is the guarantor. And, and we'll look at that as we go because it's just amazing how the linkage of this all fits together. So, uh, he not only goes into this thing about the guarantor, but he also goes into the very character of Christ. There was no assurance of the character of the priest in the priesthood. There was no assurance. Because it was on the, the the basis of lineage, the people had absolutely no assurance whether the guy was going to be a creep or not. It's a Greek, Greek word, yeah, creepios, yeah. But uh, you just didn't know if the guy was going to, if he was going to be a bad priest because there was no examination of his character. It wasn't part of the package. And so when the writer, at the towards the end of this passage we're looking at this morning, he dives into the character of Jesus, and, and he's again, clearly demonstrates this guy is way better than anything you could hope for in Judaism. So back in verse 20, it says, Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. That means he won't change. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, when he has quoted this, Psalm 110, verse 4, prior in this book, like I said, four times before, he has never put the front end of it on there where he says the Lord has sworn and will not relent. That's part of the passage. But at this point, he is wanting to be sure that these people understand that, yes, he's called to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, But the reason he is called to be a priest and the reason that's superior is because the Old Testament, the old Levitical priest never 
were installed with an oath. They were installed by birthright. And now he's saying there's something else that's different about Jesus. King David, a thousand years after the Levitical priesthood was formed, back then prophesied that this high priest that came wandering out of the fog, as we looked at in Genesis 14, he comes wandering in, blesses Abraham, Abraham ties to him. We see that the, there's the greater and the lesser represented in that, as we looked at earlier in chapter 7. Now he comes wandering in, and now we see that here is this guy that David writes about a thousand years later and says that he was installed by an oath, that he would be installed by an oath. Not that he was, that, that the Messiah, because it's a messianic psalm in Psalm 110, would be installed by an oath from God, by God giving his word, by God giving a guarantee. And so we see that not only that, but it was an oath that he would be high priest forever. Uh, God never swore an oath to the Levitical priests. It, it, he never said to any of them, you are a priest forever. Because he knew that they wouldn't be. Uh, so why an oath? Uh, verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Our high priest was installed by an oath, has become the guarantor of the new covenant. And a guarantor is, it's a, we call that a co-signer in our day, but he is the one who says, all right, here's the contract. I'm going to guarantee that the terms of the contract are carried out. If the person that the contract is written to can't fulfill it, then I will take care of it. And guess what? The person that the contract is written to, you and I, and especially when it relates to the law of Moses, could not fulfill it. And so Jesus says, no, there's a better covenant because now it's not one-sided. It's not just towards man and that's it. There's no power for man to live. I will guarantee the other side of the covenant. I will guarantee that you get all that this covenant says you're going to get. And I know you can't fulfill it. So therefore, I'm going to be the initiator of the covenant and I'm going to be the guarantor. He takes both sides. What do we do? said many times, folks, the best thing that you and I can do when it comes to the things of God is to simply show up. That's all he tells us to do. What that means is by faith, appropriate these truths in your life. Understand that this is ultimate truth. And that as you appropriate these things in your life and you respond by faith and you say, Lord, this is bigger than anything else in my life. You are more important than any other thing or any other vocation or any other whatever it is that you are the ultimate reality. You are the ultimate truth. You are the ultimate one with whom my life has to do. That's what it looks like when we show up because we're acknowledging him not just as savior, but as Lord and not just as Lord but as our high priest. Uh, many times, I mean, there are three parts to this thing that we call Christianity. And we, we understand Savior real well. Just about any Christian that you ask is, do you understand that Jesus is your Savior? And, and the answer is going to be yes, of course. He went to the cross. He died for my sins. But 
when you ask, is he your Lord? And I mean that in a literal sense. Is he the one that you check in with when you get in the car to drive down the road or when you are faced with not just major life decisions, but is he Lord of your life? Perhaps not as many people will acknowledge that, or at least they may give lip service to that, and their life doesn't reflect it. And I'm not being condemning, I'm just, it's just the way it is. And even less people, when you say, do you understand and do you, do you acknowledge the high priesthood of Christ in your life, that you can't carry out the terms of the contract, but he certainly can, and he has, he did, he has, and he will continue to, because he's a high priest forever. That's the writer's point. That's what he's getting at here. So why an oath? Because he's the surety of a better covenant. Now, the word surety, the Greek word is egios, and it means a guarantor. It's only used here in the New Testament. And when he talks about Jesus being a surety, Remember, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new. That's true. But a surety is better than a mediator because a mediator basically says, all right, I'm going to go between both sides. A surety, uh, the, the old covenant had a mediator, but no surety. No one guaranteed the people's end, end of the deal. Nobody was there to do that. That's why Jesus is better. The old covenant was weak. In Exodus chapter 24, when God gave the law, he gave the law of Moses and he gave it to the people and the people heard it. It says in in Exodus 24, 7, when the people responded to their end of the covenant, they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and obey. Good intentions, huh? And they did, they meant it. That's in Exodus 24. By the time you get to Exodus 32, they were throwing their gold into the fire. And as Aaron said, who would be the first high priest, imperfect man that he was, out jumped this calf. And they actually named that calf Yahweh. They named it God. And so the people had good intentions, but it'd be sort of like, you know, if you, you see a guy that's totally laid up, he's on crutches and, you know, all of that, and he tells you he's going to climb Mount Everest, Good luck with that. You could have all the good intentions in the world, but there's no way to shore up your end of the deal. And what Jesus says is, hop aboard, I'll give you a ride, I'll take you to the top. He is the one who does that for us. Jesus meets God's requirement for the law, for the new covenant, and he guarantees the terms will be carried out. He does that on our behalf. And so the writer is being very specific here. Look, you can't do it, but Jesus can. Not only can he, he already has. He has guaranteed it, and he will support it, and he will continue to. We're going to look at his, part of his work is is being our intercessor here in a minute. Uh, Because he holds up both ends, how does he do that? Because he's the high priest and the sacrifice. He's the one that ministers behind the veil, but he's also the sacrifice that's driving the whole thing. He's the giver and the gift. See, he's on both sides of the covenant. He's the testator. You know what a testator is? 
if you go and you write a will, a last will and testament, that you, the person who the will is about, are the testator. And that's a legal term. He's the testator and the guarantor. He's also the witness that says, okay, this is going to happen. This is how it's going to be distributed. This is how the testament is going to get worked out. He is both sides. So it's not about uh, anything other than recognizing by faith that he has done the work. You don't have to. It's finished. When Jesus hung on the cross and said to Telestai, it is finished, it was finished. He made an end of sin. It is no longer an issue in our lives. Yes, we are being made holy, and he is holy. We'll talk about that as we go. But the work has been done. His work as high priest, more than a mediator, is complete. We simply appropriate it by faith. Verse 23, also there were many priests because there were they were prevented by death from continuing. Remember, we talked about it at, at, at age 30, men entered the priesthood and they ministered until they were 50 and then they stepped aside. There was an ongoing perpetual priesthood. And, and with the high priest, he would go and they would take turns as fulfilling the office of high priest. But then when the high priest died, there's a vacancy. Uh, so what, he, what the writer is saying here is that the, the, the high priesthood the priesthood itself was temporary. It couldn't be perpetual. It couldn't be forever, like he's talking about with Jesus. In Numbers chapter 20, there's a great account here. And I really believe that God perhaps was indicating the temporary aspect of the priesthood about Aaron's death. Uh, it's where Moses uh, takes Aaron and his son Eliezer uh, up on Mount, uh, the mountain and and Aaron dies. Uh, I'll read through this briefly. In Numbers 20, 23 through 28, we read, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. That's a Bible way to say he's going to die. He'll be gathered to his people, for uh, he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. New high priest. Aaron's gone. Later in Joshua chapter 24, we see that uh, a guy by the name of Phineas replaced Eliezer, the perpetual nature of it. Uh, and on it went. Uh, Joseph, a guy by the name of Josephus, some of you have heard of it. He was a, a secular Jewish historian in the first century. It, it, and he has a lot to say about things like this. He recorded that from the time of Aaron until 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, that Israel had 83 high priests. Uh, from uh, Throughout their history, there was a continuing succession of the priesthood. Could it be that God wanted to show that this priesthood was temporary even back then? 
I think so. It was imperfect because it was operated by men. It, it could not be perfected. The priesthood could not be perfected under the law. Uh, it was temporary because the priests were limited by death. It could not be perpetual. It, it had to continue to restart in that sense. Verse 24, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Uh, the writer's being very clear. Because he's eternal, because he is resurrected, because he continues forever, that his priesthood follows. It's not changeable. There's no turnover with Jesus uh, it, the priesthood cannot and will not change forever. The, the word unchangeable here means pertaining to that which does not change from one state to another. It's, he's talking about very specific terms. Uh, it's related sort of in chapter 6. Uh, he talks about the immutability of his counsel, the unchangeable aspect of his counsel. It's the same root word here, and it's a very absolute definition. The point is this priesthood cannot be altered. Uh, it's impossible. All the prior priests, remember, all of the prior priests, all of the workings of the law, it was all a shadow. It was all pointing to future fulfillment, to ultimate fulfillment by Jesus himself. Everything pointed to that, that office that would be fulfilled by Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Sworn by an oath. Not by lineage. We know it wasn't by lineage. He wasn't from Levi. He was from Judah. And the writer has very clearly demonstrated that doesn't matter. Because he was installed in a greater way than the Levitical priests ever could have been. The thing to think about, folks, is practically speaking with you and I, he stands by your side. He stands by my side forever i can't you know in romans it says where, where grace where sin abounds grace abounds all the more it superabounds. you can't out sin if you belong to him you can't out sin the grace of god you can't do anything that's wretched enough to make him turn his back from you does that mean that we go out and we live wantonly and of course not of course not but it means the response of our life to his grace is we want to live a life that's in harmony with him and with his will. But but he's, he's there. He stands by us. He will not turn from us. He is unalterable. His priesthood is unalterable. He cannot and will not change it. It's permanent. It's secure. And you can be secure in it. Verse 25, Therefore, He's also able to save to the uttermost those who have come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, note that it says he is also able to save to the uttermost. It's not from the uttermost. Uh, 19th century evangelist, some of you may have heard of him, named Billy Sunday. He was the guy that was, he was greatly used of God. In, in, he was sort of the 19th century version of what we saw in the 20th entry with Billy Graham. Um, and one of the things he loved to tell people is I was saved from the guttermost because he was a, he was a drunk. And, and, and he says, I was saved from just being in the gutter. Uh, I was saved from the guttermost to the uttermost, he would say. But it, that's not what the writer's saying. Yeah, that's a great way to, to talk about your life. But what the writer's saying here 
is to the uttermost is the salvation that he gives is complete. It's unchanging and it's secure. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. You'll be glorified, forgiven your sins yesterday, today, forever. That's what he's talking about. When he saves to the uttermost, you are thoroughly saved. You're not kind of saved. You're not kind of there and kind of not. You need to always worry. No, if you've given your life to Christ, your life is securely in his hands. Period. That's saved to the uttermost. And praise God that he does. The point is, he guarantees it. He's the guarantor. He says, this is, and this is what it is. When he's talking about being the guarantor, he is very securely in place as our high priest, as our Lord, as our Savior. And, and he says, anybody that belongs to me is saved to the uttermost. You don't have to worry. If there was ever a passage that talks about the security of the believer, this is one of the biggies. Uh, you are securely in his hand. Now, he says, he saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him. He doesn't say those who come to God. He's very specific. You have to come to God through him. You have to trust Christ for your sins. You have to understand the gospel and you have to accept the gospel as fact and you have to, by faith, appropriate the work that he did in your life. There's so much spiritual junk food out there, guys. There's so much that's being peddled as God's word. This is very specific as well. It's not saying universal salvation, everybody's saved to the uttermost. No, those who come to God through him, through the work that he did, through the person that he is. And if you're involved or you hear people that are involved in a gospel that, that talks about Jesus, and it's not the Jesus that we see here revealed in Scripture. You hear about the work of God being done, and it's not the work of God that is revealed here. It's not the gospel. It's not coming to God through him. Very, very specific. We had a wedding yesterday, and we were talking. There was a lot of talk about God. And, and my prayer, even waking up this morning, my prayer was for the bride and groom that, that they would take the admonition to build their lives around God. Because to my knowledge, to date, they haven't. And I would love to see that happen. I would love to see them come into a fruitful relationship to come to God through Christ, to trust him for their sins, to understand that his will for their lives is far greater than anything they could personally aspire to on their own. That's the message of the gospel. That's what it looks like to come to God through him. And he says he's able here. Um, I titled this message, He is Able, because this is it's a theme that runs all through the New Testament. It's his ability. It's him doing the work. It's us being, him being the initiator, us being the respondents, us being the one who the response is coming from. It says in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, that, that he's able to make you stand. That passage is written to people that are struggling, people who are, whose faith is weak. And he's saying, you know what? It's not about whether you're stronger or weaker. It's about do you belong to him? And he will make you stand. He has the ability to, to, to lift you up, to make you stand when times are tough. Romans 16.25, it says he's able to establish you. If you have lived your life and there's always this question mark, 
do I really belong to him? Do, is, is this stuff real? Is this, you ask him and he will establish you. He will set your feet upon the rock, as it says in Psalm 40. He's the one that does it. He establishes us. In Jude 24, he says that he's able to keep us from falling. That's a wonderful promise, folks. We, the Bible says we all stumble in many ways, and we do, don't we? And yet he's the one that keeps us from falling. He is the one who provides that, that, that landing place when my life is upside down or crazy or when I'm stumbling along. He is the one that I can come to, and he stands me up. He puts me right back. Uh, I, I, I love that. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says that he's able to make all grace abound towards you. You can't exhaust his grace. You can't do it. If you understand grace, if you understand the transaction, that once you have trusted Christ for your sins, that you have received more grace than you can ever use. That his grace is not only sufficient, but it abounds towards you. That it's in plentiful supply. Don't let the God of this world rip you off in thinking that, well, you know, you've blown it here or you've done this or, or said that. And that therefore now God is mad at you. We've, we've spoken of that before. He's not mad at you. He may chastise you if you decide that you're going to cut and run. But his anger is passed over. His wrath is gone. It's part of the covenant. Acts chapter 20, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Ever feel torn up, beat down? Spend time in his word. He will build you up. Philippians 3.21, it says he's able even to subdue or subject all things to himself. Uh, I look at that as a companion verse to Romans 8.28. He works all things together for good to those that love God and who are called according to his purpose. And he's able to subject these things, all these things that we go through. He, he didn't wake up this morning and go, oh, I forgot about what's happening with you. No, he knows, he understands. He bears our infirmities, he understands our weakness, and he's there. And he will subject all things to himself. Ephesians, probably my favorite in in the New Testament is in Ephesians chapter 3. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He is able. He'll do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Why? Because he delights in blessing his people. He loves to bless. He loves us. Back in Hebrews 7.25 here, he says he's also able to save to the uttermost. Completely, utterly, permanently. Says he ever lives to make intercession for them. You know, I don't know. Do you have a working understanding of what intercession is? Uh, it's a form of prayer, and it, what it means is to pray on behalf of others. Uh, it's where you're carrying other people's needs before the Father. You're, you're bearing other people to God. And when he talks about Jesus, 
His intercession, it's not a matter of him placating or pleading with the Father. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not pleading with God on our behalf because if we belong to him, the covenant is already in place and there's no need for him to do that. It's not a matter of continually chanting prayers on behalf of his people. What it does mean is that he's continually representing us before the Father so that we can draw close to him. We looked at that in chapter 4. This is that we have boldness to come before the throne of grace. That's part of the reason in, in that sense is because Jesus is interceding for us before the Father. When I sin, he's right there to say, no, Father, he belongs to me. He, it, his, my name is on his life or her life. That doesn't count against them. That's part of his work. That's part of him being the guarantor. What it means is he defends us against Satan's attacks and his accusations. Uh, when he is interceding for us in a very real sense, he knows you by name and he is going to prayer before the Father on your behalf. That's the guarantor of the covenant. Do you understand how you see that he's holding up this end as well as that end? That's what the writer's point is. It's not a one-sided deal that can't be fulfilled. The law was one-sided. Yes, it established righteousness. It established the law, the rules by which man must live. But man never could do that. And God, knowing that in his love and his mercy and his compassion and his foreknowledge, Jesus comes along, fulfills that. In us, it's fulfilled by simple faith in him. That law, the holy requirements of the law, are fulfilled in us. And now we come before the Father with him, with his righteousness over our lives, and we are the ones who stand. He has made us stand. That's his mediatory, that's his guarantor work. That's the work he does as a surety for the covenant for us. Interesting one aspect of this is he himself is our intercession. Not making intercession as much as he is our intercession. He stands before the Father. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that he stands in the midst of the throne room of heaven as a lamb. All-knowing, all-powerful, with the marks of slaughter upon him. Think about the vision, the scene there that John saw. He's taken up to the throne room of God. And he says, I saw one as a lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And there's Jesus in his intercession for us with the marks of slaughter on his body. Uh, he stands, he ever stands to guarantee the new covenant on our behalves. Why? Because he loves us. It's all been paid for. It's all been accomplished. And all that one must do is, by faith, receive it. Or not. We live in a world where people are rejecting God. They're rejecting Christ. They're rejecting his promises. They're rejecting his offer of salvation. And, and it, it, when I read passages like this, it strengthens my faith. I, I see that there is, there's real there's just a solid foundation to these things that we believe that, that Jesus has done all of the work and all he beckons to us to do is to come and to by faith appropriate these truths in our lives. 
And when people don't, yes, their eternity hangs in a very, very dangerous place. And yet the ability to have a life that is worth living, the ability to live a life that is is marked by trusting God is just not there. You see all the problems out in our society. I mean, I, I, I look at the signs in the neighborhoods around town where it talks about you are worth it and you know, all of that. And, and I understand the good intention behind that. But there's really no feet to that message. I'm not a good person just because I think I'm a good person. As a matter of fact, I know I'm a really lousy person, but the grace of God rests on my life and it's his goodness that's expressed through me as I walk with him. It, it, it's not about, I mean, you look around, you look at the suicide rate in our community with young people. And becoming a viable alternative to life is, well, I'll just take my own life. I don't want to live it. I don't have any purpose. I don't have any direction. I don't have any, any, any real compass in my life. There's no moral bearing. And yet with Jesus, there's identification with him. There's, there's purpose. There's the ability to live life that's not marked by my circumstances. There's the ability to understand life from the lens of, of, of a biblical worldview that is far above anything that you're going to get by scrapping around just trying to get by in, in a faithless, godless culture and world. This is Jesus' work as a guarantor. This is the other side of the covenant that was not in effect in the mediatory office of Moses. Moses was a mediator. Jesus is better. He's a guarantor. Paul in Romans chapter 8 he had some things to say about intercession as well. He says in 8.33 through 35, he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, rhetorically asking. No, none of that can separate us from the love of Christ. It strengthens us to know that Jesus prays for us, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. What a tremendous encouragement this is to those of us that belong to him. What a tremendous encouragement this could be to those who are struggling. When I got that call from the hospice people this week, I, I just thought, Lord, you know, what a great way to build a bridge for the gospel. When somebody, I'll tell you what, when you know that you're dying of a terminal illness and you're looking right at that door, you're harvestable. If there is ever a time where somebody could step from death to life, I've seen uh, a couple of times a, a quote, deathbed conversion. And I remember this one guy, his wife had died and and uh, a couple of the pastors from our church went in to visit this guy and and one of the pastors uh, in our church said to this guy, he said, you know, you're only one heartbeat from heaven. And that's all it took for the lights to come on and this guy to say, really? And he said, and Jesus is right on the other side. And, and it was just an amazing, amazing time. 
to see this guy, I mean, to just see his countenance glow and to see him relax about the uncertainty of what was going to happen to him when he died. Uh, and, and so I just look at this and I think what tremendous encouragement it is when not only when people are dying, but those times when we might feel like giving up, where those times where our life is pressed in, where those times where the stresses of, of the day are, are just on us, know that Jesus is making intercession for you. Know that he knows you by name. The Bible says he's numbered the hairs on your head, not just counted them, he numbered them. Not so many with mine, but that he numbers the hair on our head, that he knows us by name, that he loves you intimately and completely by name. This isn't just religious dogma, folks. This is the word of God. And by the spirit of God, he wants to drive these truths into our hearts and to have us by faith, again, simply believing it, to appropriate these things in our lives and for our lives to be enriched. That's his goal. That's what he wants to do. That's what the writer was trying to do with these first century Christians who are struggling. And that's what God wants to do with us. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So when he says it is fitting, that means it's proper. What the writer launches into now is he talks about the character of Christ. Um, The Levitical priests under the law didn't have the personal character of the Son of God. It was potluck for those guys. And look at, uh, I was looking in the Old Testament, looking for some examples, and I, one of the things that came to mind was the, the, the high priest Eli. He was the high priest at Shiloh, which is where after they brought the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River and they got it, they took it up to Shiloh. It was there for over 400 years, and, and Eli was the high priest up there. And he may have been okay as a high priest, but he was, wasn't real good as a dad. Uh, he had a couple of sons <laughs> named Hophni and Phineas, and they were in line for the priesthood. And the Bible tells us they really didn't care about God. They could care less. They were taking this big three-pronged fork, and they'd dive the fork into the pot, remember, from the sacrifices, and they would just eat any of the meat that came out. God had said, no, you just eat from the upper thigh and the breast. That was the priest's portion. But they didn't care. The other thing, and, and really more of an indictment than that, is they were having sexual relations with women at the gate to the tabernacle. I mean, right there out in the open. They had turned it into this sexual free-for-all, and God judged them. Uh, remember, the, 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 they got the bright idea to weaponize the ark and uh, haul it off to battle against the Philistines, and Hophni and Phinehas went with them. And there was a great slaughter there. Both of them were killed. And that was God's judgment on them for their their impiety, for their godlessness and their godless handling of the things of God. And not only did they die, word came back to Eli, their dad. He's sitting in a chair the same day. He falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Not only that, but one of the guy's wife was pregnant, and she died in childbirth because she stressed out over hearing about her husband's death. I mean... God was serious about this deal. And yet we see in that that there was no guarantee of the character of these guys who were called to be priests in the Old Testament. 
There was just nothing there. It was all lineage. Now, there were two high priests in Jesus' day, uh, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had been deposed by Rome. They said, no, we don't want you here anymore. You're out of here. Now, but he held on to power and he was still considered a high priest by the Jews. Now, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, had been installed as high priest in Israel and, and, and Annas had five other sons and they all took turns being high priests. There wasn't a more crooked bunch in all of Israel. And yet they held the office of high priest. And, and they were charged with carrying out the priestly functions. And when Jesus brought the leper to them, and I go into the story, and he, he knew that there was a prescribed treatment for cleansing a leper, it, it was never done. They didn't care. They turned the things of God into a sham. They turned it into a circus with Annas' bazaar, with the whole money changer thing and the, the temple currency and the animals and all that. We've looked at that when we were in the Gospel of John. But the point is, is that there was no guarantee of character with the old priesthood. Uh, the other thing about Caius and Anaphas, they were Sadducees. And, you know, the, one of the big things in our news all the time is the difference between conservatives and liberals. These guys were as liberal as they came. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. They were Sadducees. And uh, the party of the Sadducees was totally opposed. They were very liberal in the theology. And so the theology that the high priest had would be what was related to the people as they went. And so it was just upside down. We see a lot of that out there in so-called churches today where this a whole liberal aspect of Christianity has taken hold and people are peddling doctrines that are not just neutrally not found in the Bible, but against what's found in the Bible. And so uh, be careful. Man has a tendency. We want to have people that we look to. I mean, we don't have a royalty in the United States, but we have Hollywood. And and uh, it's just like, oh, please, you know, we put these people that know how to play games and act on on a pedestal. And, 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 and but people in the church do it too. I call it, I fondly called it shepherdolatry, where we want to, you know, we, we, we want to look to the, the pastor to have all the answers. Guess what, folks? I don't have all the answers. Uh, you know, and, and, and be careful that your eyes are on the Lord. Because what happened in Israel can happen to us. Where we get our eyes on the man, and depending on where that man's at, whether he stands or falls, it's a very dangerous thing. And I'm not saying there's not integrity that must be in place in the pastorate and in our lives. What I am saying is be careful to not put your eyes on man. And that's what the priesthood did. Because it put people's eyes on fallible, sinful priests. And the priesthood didn't do well. It was not able to be perfected on that basis. He says that Jesus is holy and harmless. That means when he says he's harmless, he's without guile or, de- or, or deception. He, he's innocent. Uh, undefiled, that means he's not dirty. He's, he's not unclean. Uh, separate from sinners. It doesn't mean that he's separated off for, because he dined with sinners. But it says that in, in the sense of not sharing their sin, separate from sinners. Jesus is far superior in his personal character than any earthly priest ever could have thought of being. And when it talks about him being holy, now there's a difference between him being holy and us being holy, okay? 
Holiness for us is a direction. We are, by declaration, we are declared holy. That's absolutely true. That happens at conversion. That happens when when we give our lives to Christ. We are declared holy. That's part of it. We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified. In other words, we are being made into the likeness of his son. We are on this road of being sanctified. We are sinning less, I hope. As we go along, we are growing in our relationship with him. And so being sanctified. Holiness, that's what sanctified means. Sanctus is the Latin word for holy. And so we're being we're all in this process of sanctification so so holiness for a christian is a direction and the lord willing your life is headed in that direction that's by design we should be being more holy as we go as god works in our life as he takes us through things as we appropriate his word all of that it's part of what is what we call growth as a christian for him it wasn't a direction it was a state of being so, you know, there's, and for God, there's two things. There's either you're God or you're not God. And, and God is holy. He is separate from above, infinitely pure as relates to infinity. That's holiness. We should have a good working knowledge of holiness and, and the fact that God is holy. He is above and when you look at Jesus in, the, in this high priestly office, as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the fact that he is holy, none of these other priests ever were, nor could they be. And so, again, the contrast is clear. There's nobody like him. When he says he's harmless, again, I came across this. Says there's integrity, duplicity, and hypocrisy. Integrity is who I am, whether I'm here or I'm there. That's just who I am. I'm not, there's no pretense. I'm, that's just who I am. I, I want to have a life that's marked by integrity. And we all do, don't we? Duplicity is, that's who I want to be. Maybe not who I am, but who I want to be. But I waver. Yeah, I want to be more like Jesus, but I waver. I, and it's not something I'm setting out to deceive people. You know, I want to be that person, but Sometimes there's duplicity in my life. Hypocrisy, on the other hand, is somebody who I'm not. All right? And, and so when it talks about him being harmless, he's free from duplicity. He is not a hypocrite. He is who he is with perfect integrity. That's our high priest. He's harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's become higher than the heavens. No other priest could make this claim. None of them. Verse 27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Interesting. There's another huge difference between the other high priest and him. Two facts that prove the perfect character of Jesus. One, he was exalted into heaven. If Jesus had been sinful, the Father would not have accepted his sacrifice. His sacrifice would have been void. Perfect character. Exalted into heaven. The second is that he didn't need to offer up sacrifices for himself. For his own sins, he didn't have any. 
How much of an advantage would that be? The priests needed to offer those sacrifices up daily. Their sins had to be covered before they could go and mediate for the sins of the people, before they could go and offer atonement for the sins of the people. They could not have sin marked in their life at that point. That's why the high priest that one day a year had to go through this huge ceremony of cleansing not only himself, but even the rooms and even the grounds of the tabernacle and then the temple. They had to be ceremonially cleaned in order for the atonement to take place. None of that had to happen with Jesus. None of it. Because he's the sinless son of God. Here's something that Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, talking about offering up himself. This is when he offered up himself, it was a willing offering. I'm sorry, I'll start over. When he offered up himself, it was a willing offering. Oh, this makes the sacrifice of Christ so blessed and glorious. They dragged the bullocks and they drove the sheep to the altar. They bound the calves with cords, even with cords to the altar's horn. But not so was it with the Christ of God. None did compel him to die. He laid down his life voluntarily. For he had power to lay it down and to take it up again. Isn't that good? So Jesus offered up himself as the sacrifice. Again, the high priest and the sacrifice, holding up both ends of the covenant. Initiating the covenant, being the guarantor of the covenant. Verse 28, for the law appoints the high priest among, uh, as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected or consecrated forever. So the law appoints men, fallible men. God's oath appoints a son. Do you see the contrast? That's what he's driving at. As we wrap up chapter 7 here, we see this whole thing beginning with with Melchizedek and what he was all about and then looking at the fact that there's a better covenant and then finishing up looking at the fact that there's a better high priest. Why? Because he's one who comes with an oath. He's one who comes as a guarantor of the covenant, not just one to enforce one side, to enforce God's side, but he enforces our side as well. He stands to make intercession for us. He goes and he he pleads your case to the Father. And the Father is satisfied with that. Why? Because he's satisfied with the Son. Wonderful promises in the skies. Uh, it says that that he came after, that the oath, the word of the oath came after the law. That means it superseded it. That means it was replaced. Remember, we've looked at the, the covenant was replaced, the high priest is replaced, and, and the oath came after the law. And so the oath supersedes the um, the oath supersedes the law and, and, and the Levitical priesthood as far as the way that priests were installed, the way that they came to be. All of the Levitical priests were weak. They were frail. They were sinners. They had varying degrees of character and they were dying. Not so with our hero. Not so with Jesus, the Son of God. The, the, when he says perfected, that he's been perfected forever, the idea is that the appointment is complete. It's permanent. You can bank on it. Again, a, a, a kind of a complex argument that the writer is weaving us through here, 
Uh, I love his understanding of the law. I love his understanding of Judaism, his understanding of the Levitical priesthood, and his understanding of what David meant when he said that God swore an oath that you will be a high priest forever, not replaceable, no need for anything more after the order of Melchizedek. Great promises for them, something that they could sink their teeth into and hold on to. Great promises for us, something that we can gain further understanding. And I don't know about you, but the response of my heart is just simply gratitude to know that God went to those lengths, that he goes to those to that extent to save. He goes to that extent to be able to pull us into this beautiful relationship through which the response of our hearts to his grace is just simply wanting to live a life that counts for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. Oh, Lord, this is so much here. I, I, I just... Uh, feel like we could spend a lot more time on this and, and yet